So, Jay, what's up with Damask? Oh, gosh, uh, let me think. So, um, it's a type of fabric with a woven-in textural design. It's one of... No, no, I mean Damask the character. Oh, man, I was so excited to get to talk about textiles. Not today, Jay. I'm sorry. Ugh, fine. Well, she works for Apocalypse, she's got a fancy outfit, and her power is psionic skinning, which has to be one of the most creepily named superpowers ever. Does she have an Earth-616 version? Not yet, but she will about a year after her Age of Apocalypse debut. That's when we learn her real name, too, or her given name, at least. Yeah? Emma Steed. Oh, I see what someone did there. Not only that, but she was the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club, or at least the London branch. Seriously? That's a little on the nose with that reference. Oh, and she was also working with Onslaught. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 294 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back again, again, again to the Age of Apocalypse. It's where we live now. It's also the story we're reading. That's right, we've been hanging our hats for the last... Gosh, I don't even remember the times before Earth-295, but anyway, that's where we're hanging out these days. Indeed it is. And we've dealt with a couple of our favorite series in the last couple of episodes. We did Factor X, we did Generation Next. This time we're doing Excalibur. That's X-C-A-L-I-B-R-E, thus winning the award for possibly the second laziest name in the AOA after Factor X. I gotta say, I remembered the series as being kind of weak, or at least comparatively weak. But it was a lot more fun than I remembered it being, too. It is. I mean, we have Warren Ellis writing, since he was the writer who'd been writing the main Excalibur book, and even early Warren Ellis is still, by and large, pretty enjoyable. His plots aren't always the strongest, but his dialogue and his narration very much are. Well, and Ken Lashley's art is terrific. I go back and forth on Lashley's art. Like, I like many aspects of it, but it just feels... I don't know, like a little generic to me. And that could just be because we just got done with Factor X and Generation Next, both of which have like phenomenal, unique art. I don't know. So here's the thing. Lashley is a reasonably strong all-around artist. Not spectacular, but, but good. He carries the book well. Here's where he distinguishes himself to me, his Nightcrawler. Now, this book, this is a book all about Nightcrawler, and this is a book about a version of Nightcrawler who is very, very different personality-wise from Earth-616's Nightcrawler, but aesthetically very similar. Lashley nails both the similarities and the contrasts, and it's fascinating and haunting and very, very, very cool. Yeah, I'll completely agree with you there. Uh, He also does draw a very sexy Nightcrawler, which I think is always a plus. Nightcrawler is kind of stubbly in this timeline. As for how that works with his velvety fur, I'm not sure, but it's a good look. I mean, you can set clippers to different different lengths. It's true. I actually just trimmed my beard kind of short because it's getting hot and uh, it's hard to have a giant beard under a, a face mask. Yeah, I just buzzed like three quarters of my head at three sixteenths of an inch. Oh man, that's so few sixteenths of an inch. 
right? This is what happens when I wake up at 5 a.m. and can't get back to sleep. I'm like, yeah, it's a great idea to just shave the sides of my head right now. Ah, quarantine haircuts. I feel like a lot of us are going to have those stories. No, the thing is, it's the same haircut I had. It's just slightly shorter on the sides. In another week and a half, it'll be where I intended it to be. Oh, okay. I'm just leaving mine alone. It's it, it's perfect and majestic, and if I touch it, it'll just ruin it. That being said, those split ends are getting a little iffy at this point. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning into my in, into the whole punk heartthrob aesthetic that seems to have accidentally happened on my head. It works really well for you, I gotta say. Alright, so speaking of characters with haircuts that work really well for them- Oh god, that was a Miles segue. I'm sorry. I feel weird about having said that. Ha! My influence grows! See, now I'm going to have to start doing them deliberately, and it's going to be like that Halloween that I was going to go as you, but it was too creepy. You had all my mannerisms down, and you, like, sharpie to goatee on your face, and it was... I mean, well done, but... I'm an observant person, and a very good vocal mimic. (laughs) You truly are. Anyway, uh, Excalibur, right? Excalibur. Excalibur. So, how did we get here? Well, I don't know about you, but I came by car. Which is to say, how did we get to this story? Ah, well, long ago, a man named Charles Xavier gathered a group of five remarkable teenagers to fight to protect a world that hated and feared them. Let's go a little more recent. Oh, fine. The Age of Apocalypse timeline is what happens when Professor X's son goes back in time, rewrites history by accidentally killing his own father, and Apocalypse, that's the big demigod figure, comes to power early enough that no one can stop him because the X-Men take too long to get started. The Age of Apocalypse story is what happens when the only survivor of the old timeline, Lucas Bishop, shows up to tell this universe's X-Men that history happened wrong and needs to be rewritten. Magneto, who in the Age of Apocalypse timeline leads the X-Men, sends different members of his team and different allies on different missions to hopefully restart the timeline. Including Nightcrawler, whose job it is to work with his mom Mystique to track down her ex, Destiny, who can verify whether any of this makes any sense. That's gonna be so awkward. That brings us to Excalibra number one, The Infernal Gallop. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Ken Lashley, inked by Phil Moy, Bud LaRosa, and Tom Wegrison, and colored by Joe Rosas and Digital Chameleon. And this book is kind of the opposite of Factor X, in that it doesn't really have very much of a connection at all to the main universe book it's based on, Excalibur. Like, we have Nightcrawler, and that's pretty much it. I mean, Factor X had Havoc, and that's pretty much it. Well, right, but it also had a bunch of the original 5X-Men, it was technically a government-sponsored team, there were connections, you know? Yeah, and this has, you know, Doug Ramsey and their sort of Doug Lock and Excalibur. And the point is, it has Nightcrawler with two swords looking real sexy, which I would say means that it captures a good part of the spirit of Excalibur, or at least what makes it such a good book. I'm not going to argue with that. But we open not with Nightcrawler at all, but with a new character, a young mutant woman named Switchback. And she's on a ferry, like a Charon River Styx-style ferry, heading somewhere. But before she gets to that somewhere, she meets a rare half-orc monk. I mean, it's uh, Kane Marco, you know, the Juggernaut, the Age of Apocalypse version of him. And he's, mo- he's a monk, yeah, he's like wearing very simple clothing, he's got those prayer beads, he's got a shaved head, he looks very serene. It is not the Juggernaut we have come to expect. 
It's worth noting here that we don't see who was piloting the ferry. Uh, Kane meets Switchback at at the shore of 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 the river that she's she's being conveyed down. Um, and we're gonna find out who was who else was in the boat later. And they travel for days and days on foot, Switchback and Kane, and eventually get closer to a place called Avalon, which we see from this gorgeous two-page spread that looks like it's watercolor, maybe, is clearly in the Savage Land, the dinosaur land in the middle of Antarctica. Sadly, there are no dinosaurs in this story. I guess Apocalypse, I don't know, maybe he took their bones and burned them under his throne because they smelled good. Maybe Avalon's just like a small nested community in the middle of the dinosaur territory, or they like found the one sort of dinosaur-free area of the Savage Land. Or maybe there are dinosaurs and we just don't see them, they don't come up in this story. The point is, Avalon is a tiny idyllic utopia in the middle of the raging dystopia of Apocalypse's Earth. And largely through these visuals and just through how much time we get to spend in the various locations in this series, I will say that Excalibur has a pretty good sense of place where not all of the Age of Apocalypse comics do. So... What's the deal with Avalon? It's pretty much a refuge for both humans and mutants who want to live peaceful lives away from all of the, you know, genocide uh, in the rest of the world of the Age of Apocalypse. And it seems like it's working pretty well. And it's run by a woman that we know as readers of the main X-Men comics. It's run by Destiny, the blind precognitive mutant. In this, she's also specifically a psychometric um, telepath. Yeah, that means that when she touches people, she can see what's going on in her case with their future timeline. And when she touches Switchback, she gets quite a surprise. Because she finds out that Avalon's going to burn! And so we have that hanging over our heads throughout the entire series. Also, almost all of the issue titles are references to that. You know, just in case you forget between the pages. But what's Nightcrawler up to since this is his book? Well, he's in Heaven, which is to say the nightclub called Heaven, run by Warren Kenneth Worthington III, Actual Hawk, and Rich Douchebag. Rich Douchebag in any universe. We've talked about this version of Warren fairly extensively, Warren of the Age of Apocalypse, and how interesting it is that in the Age of Apocalypse, Angel, who's storyline in the 616 was largely defined by becoming Apocalypse's Horseman of Death and from there Archangel remains himself, or at least his, his own base self. Although there's a kind of great caption in the lead-in here that raises that into some degree of question and kind of implies that if just metaphorically Angel of the Age of Apocalypse may have a little more than it appears in common with his main universe self. Warren Worthington who has sold any piece of him worth keeping to make heaven what it is. Yeah. Well, Nightcrawler says, Hey Angel, fuck your neutrality, fuck keeping out of this conflict. I'm going to do terrible things to you unless you can get me passage to Antarctica, where Destiny is, so I can meet up with my mom, Mystique. And in fact, earlier in the comic, we see Magneto making similar threats to Mystique to get her to participate as well. Yeah. Nightcrawler has... No time for Angel's vaunted neutrality. He's also got no time for the aspersions that Angel casts on Mystique, implying that she's just been stealing refugee stuff and dumping them in the sea to die. 
because she, of course, is the aforementioned fairy person taking refugees to Avalon. What we're eventually going to find out is that what Mystique is up to is much more benign, but what she's being accused of involves conflation between her and a number of other people. This stuff's going on, but to what extent Mystique is at fault, we'll, we'll find out as the series progresses. Angel gives in and sends Kurt over to the ghost dance in Manhattan, which is in an old uh, Stark warehouse. Nice little detail there. Um, I appreciate that Age of Apocalypse Kurt hates churches. This comes up multiple times. He's cl clearly got some kind of horrible history with religion. We don't find out what. It's just a little bit of uh, implied backstory that deepens the character. So what's the deal with the ghost dance? So the ghost dance was actually a real thing in real life that started in the late 1800s. Um, it was a Native American ritual dance that the idea was, I mean, there were different versions of it, but one of the ideas was that it would bring back the tribes who were participating in its ancestors and would help stop white expansion. Um, I think it was associated largely with the Northern Paiute leader Wovoke. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And it actually led in part to the Lakota resistance against white colonialism. Um, and here, the same, it's basically the same as that. A lot of folks, most of whom seem to be Native Americans, are dancing, but in this case, to take down Apocalypse. So we went back and forth and we did some research on this, basically to try to figure out whether this was something that would have come up in, in context of, of um, John Proudstar's history. As, as an Apache, and we, we weren't be able to find a conclusive answer to that specifically, but the ghost dance did spread pretty significantly um, across both both land and, and between tribes and populations, so there's precedent on that front, at least to some extent. Yeah, because John Proudstar, which is to say Thunderbird, the first X-Man to die way back in the Bronze Age, he runs the ghost dance here, and... You know, he's not wearing his uh, extremely stereotypical Native American X-Men uniform, which is probably for the best. He's clearly still the same dude, though, because he gets angry a whole lot, and he accuses Mystique of the same stuff that Angel accused her of, at which point Nightcrawler grabs John's pointing finger and teleports it off. Ugh. Damn, Kurt. This Kurt has a hell of a mean streak. I mean, not the cruel sadism that, like, Age of Apocalypse Shadowcat has, but this Kurt is just nasty, and not in the fun, nasty boys kind of way. Well, this Kurt is aggressively and violently utilitarian, and he's also very aggressively protective of and angry at Mystique. There's, there's That's clear in the closing narration. It's very much one of those, I can take my mom to account, but you better not talk shit about her. Yeah, and uh, once again, Nightcrawler being a jerk still gets him what he wants. The Ghost Dance folks do send him on the way to Avalon through something called the Infernal Gallop, which seems to be kind of the equivalent of the American Underground Railroad taking various refugees to safety under the nose of authority. Its name, though, is a reference to the instrumental piece of the same name, originally from, from Offenbach's Orpheus in the Underworld, but um, the, the Infernal Gallop is, is known best to, to audiences at this point as, as the classic can-can music. Wait, you mean like the da 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 that one? Yeah. 
okay, okay, this series is now suddenly hilarious. Like, really, it's bleak and dark, but if you imagine the whole thing happening to that music, I mean, it's not quite as absurd as, like, Flight of the Bumblebee or Yakety Sax, but it's kind of up there. Well, and Orpheus in the Underworld is a, basically a ribald sat- a social satire. That's not the Orpheus myth that I'm familiar with. Yeah, it's definitely not the Orpheus Orphe- myth-, myth that you're familiar with. Oh, man. Well, let's can-can our way to Excalibur number two, titled Burn. This is, again, written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Roger Cruz, uh, Renato Arlem, Charles Moda, and Eddie Wagner, inked by Phil Moy, Tom Weisgren, and Harry Candelario, colored by Joe Rosas and Digital Chameleon. That's that's a lot. Sure is. Now, this issue is titled Burn, and we know from Destiny's vision that Avalon is going to burn. Now we're going to get an idea of exactly how that's going to come to pass. Because Damask, Moonstar, and Deadman Wade, the Pale Riders of Apocalypse, are heading off to Avalon. Let's talk about who these characters are. Moonstar, I assume, is pretty obvious. Danielle Moonstar, who has the same codename in both universes. And in fact, she was spying at Ghost Dance, which is how she knows both that Kurt's headed to Avalon and where he's going and how he's going to get there. I assume that Dead Guy Wade's 616 identity is pretty obvious from his name, but for those of you who aren't certain, he's Spider-Man. Or at least he looks kind of like Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, okay, it's Deadpool. He's a very sad version of Deadpool. Uh, Mostly people keep torturing him because he's got a healing factor and they're all jerks and he just sort of like takes it because he thinks that that means they like him. I feel so bad for Deadman Wade. He doesn't really have a memory. He's had his brain and his memory rewritten a lot of times, and he's he's he only appears to have retained like limited awareness and and kind of understanding of his context. Yeah, Damask is a new character. Uh, like you mentioned, we'll find out in the six one six that her name is Emma Steed, a reference to the old non Marvel Universe Avengers TV show, which is kind of great. And. This group is called the Pale Riders for no apparent reason. It's just I, their name. I mean, Apocalypse had Dark Riders back in the Executioner's Song crossover, and Death rides a pale horse, which is sort of an Apocalypse thing, so I don't know. Maybe they just think it sounds cool. I think that's the origin of a lot of things that Apocalypse does. Speaking of, of things that were cool in 1996... Let's talk about their video conferencing software because, man, there are some amazingly dated mid-90s CG moments in this comic. Um, it sticks out like a sore thumb. When when Apocalypse is, is calling on the monitors, um, they, they get the, the Apocalypse calling graphic, which is a giant, very blocky, burning fist. And then they get a, a sort of awkward, again, very mid-90s CG Apocalypse bus talking to them. You are to follow the dissidents to Avalon, and then you are to kill Avalon. First, though, Damask murders Moonstar. Yeah, Moonstar had been torturing Wade a lot, and Damask is like, if you don't stop that, I'm going to turn this car around, and uh, Moonstar doesn't stop it, so Damask turns the car around, the car of Moonstar's life. And this is weird. Like, on the one hand, she's kind of protecting Dead Man Wade, but you get the impression she doesn't care. So I think they just have her kill Moonstar to make it clear how extra evil Damask is. I, I got nothing. 
Meanwhile, while we're waiting for Avalon to burn, it's Ghost Dance's turn to. Ah, oh, but there's a nice little happy thing in Ghost Dance, which is that John Proudstar um, has his finger again. There's a little bandage around where it was teleported off, and it's on there. I don't think Thunderbird had a healing factor. Uh, maybe he just taped it on and had a lot of optimism. You can surgically reattach digits sometimes. Yeah, but it looks like it's just tied on with a rag. That might also be the case. The people who are attacking Ghost Dance are a group called the Madri that I think we've alluded to in other episodes, but they are creepy. They're super weird. They wear big cloaks and speak in a calligraphy font and carry laser rifles and appear to be kind of Apocalypse's warrior priests. What do you think the calligraphic font sounds like? I imagine that it's like multiple ones of them chanting. Like Gregorian chants? Yeah. Oh man, that makes them both silly and creepy, which uh, I guess fits pretty well. So, if the name's not a giveaway, we're eventually, not in this series, but eventually going to learn that these guys are all Jamie Madrox. Yeah. I, that's something that Age of Apocalypse does well. It takes mutant powers and takes them in just unexpected directions that totally fit the setting. And I think the Madri are one of the better examples of that. Out at sea, nothing's on fire, but the situation is still pretty fraught. The air exchange in the good submarine Excalibur, which is smuggling refugees to Avalon, has broken, and they're smothering to death in the hold. Nightcrawler, however, isn't. He had teleported out of the hold earlier, figuring, well, his mission's critical, he's got to keep himself alive for it, even though he hates that means he can't help anyone. Now, going back just a sep, um, it's worth noting that the Excalibur is captained by Walter Newell. This is a character who's got precedent, um, although not really in X-Books. On 616, he's an oceanographer and an on-and-off Avenger named Stingray. Oh, good for you, Newell. Luckily, a freighter picks up on the Excalibur's distress signal. It's captained by Callisto, who claims to have known Newell's predecessor and be on the side of the Angels, and... Uh, she has the refugees put all of their valuables in a big bin as cover just in case they get stopped because nominally her ship's supposed to be on a salvage mission, um, and then hides them in a disused ballast tank. And you can guess what happens here. It's one of those things where there's just this specter of dread with every passing panel because you know that of course Callisto and her crew just took the refugees' valuables so that they could kill all the refugees. They're essentially pirates pretending to be saviors. Yeah, and Kurt is okay because he had ported out of the hold a little bit early, as, as you mentioned, Miles. And I think you know, the narration around his decision to do that is actually a pretty good window into Kurt. Very much the point where he starts to click with his 616 counterpart, because this Kurt still has a strong sense of justice and of right and wrong. And he really, it's important to him that people be safe and that they be okay. But the world he lives in has effectively forced him to develop other priorities and to, again, have that that kind of incredibly vicious utilitarian approach to, to things that he that he has. Yeah, and uh, it's for the best, because Callisto's crew does indeed open the ballast tanks that are hiding in refugees and just drowns them all. They they all die. They freeze to death immediately in the water. It is horrifying. So I was wondering about this, because in terms of like historical references, it kind of reminded me of, to get super historically dark, the Nazi death, death trains, where the Nazis would tell their prisoners that they were taking them somewhere, and in fact were just taking them somewhere to die. 
Um, there's also a scene on one of my favorite science fiction shows that's very similar to this, but I talked to friend of the podcast and historian Joe Streckert, who does the excellent Weird History podcast, and he actually found a specific event that may have at least been an inspiration for this, if not directly. He says, So this is pretty grim. I couldn't find anything exactly like this, but in 1980, a ship bound for Miami did have a similar incident when attempting to hide Dominican refugees inside a ballast tank. There were 34 refugees total, and at one point the Dominican Navy boarded the ship to search for refugees. The ship's crew hid the refugees in the tank, sealed it, and soon it began to take on water. The Dominican sailors searching the ship heard streams from the tank, opened it, and found 22 of the 34 refugees dead. So it's possible that Ellis was familiar with that event, and this was a bit of inspiration for the story he wrote here. Hard to say, but um, terrifying regardless. So going back to Excalibur, you talked about a little bit about Kurt's relationship to the church, and that's something that gets built in some really interesting ways based on what he exclaims beside himself when he realizes what's happening under his feet in the ballast tank as it's being emptied. Mein Gott in Himmel! Nein! Nein! Yeah, um, this kid hates the church like no one but a once-upon-a-time true believer can. Yeah, you still get the impression he was very much raised, presumably Catholic. He just, um, rejected that hard. Well, or at some point was seriously, seriously religious and then left that. I have trouble imagining that Mystique raised him particularly devout. Yeah, although it's unclear whether he was fully raised by Mystique or if he reconnected with her as an adult the way he did in the 616. That's never really specified. Either way, I fucking love their relationship, which we're going to get more into, I think, in the next issue. Yeah. But man, this section of the comic, this stuck with me as a kid. Like, in the same way that some of that Generation Next imagery really did, there's this page where there are the bodies, you know, just all scattered in the sea, dead, just staring open-mouthed and open-eyed. And then these panels below of... Callisto's ship from above, with more and more and more bubbles rising around it, as one of the sailors says, wish we had time to go for their fillings. Like, as a child? I don't know, I'd never really thought about the world being that way, and this scene is played pretty realistically, like, there, there aren't any spandex or energy blasts. This was something that, to my young reader's eyes, could have happened in real life, and that was chilling. I just sort of sat there for a while after reading that page. You and Kurt both, but Kurt being an X-Man in a world where the X-Men have significantly looser restrictions around killing jumps back into action pretty immediately, and what he does, having been unable to save the refugees, is hunt down and kill the crew off one by one. And I gotta say, like, as disturbing as it is to see this very dark, at times, cruel Kurt here, oh yeah, that's real cathartic. This is specifically the scene where, for me at least, you know, just just the art, although I guess, I guess Lashley didn't draw this issue, but the swashbuckler Kurt here is so recognizable in, in his physicality and his fighting style but at the same time so alien in his absolute ruthlessness. Yeah, it really conveys what the Age of Apocalypse has turned Nightcrawler into. It, uh, it works really well. So he, he kills the entire crew, save for Callisto, who manages to pull a gun on him, 
just in time to be attacked by Mystique, who looks after her kid, and who's also super awesome and piratey. Oh, she looks so rad. For starters, her hair is, like, the size of the rest of her body put together, and she's got all these random leather straps crisscrossed over her, like, white leather outfit. It is so- Her outfit is black leather, buddy. The thing is, it's done the way that Storm's uniform is in the 90s, where, weirdly enough, it's hard to tell based on the lighting and shadows whether it's supposed to be white with black shadows or black with white shine. That seemed pretty clear to me, especially once we got to later issues where it starts getting simplified a little bit and it's clearly the same outfit just being drawn a little bit more straightforwardly, and then there's there's less of the highlights and it looks more like it's, it's more in blacks and grays. Well, regardless, she looks extra as hell, and I respect that. Extra but oddly practical. That sounds like Mystique. Anyway, that brings us to Excalibur number three, Body Heat. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled once again by Ken Lashley, inked by Phil Moy and Tom Wegerson, colored by Joe Rosas and Digital Chameleon. But the cover by Carlos Pacheco with inks by Bill Sienkiewicz is beautiful. It's this picture of Nightcrawler and Mystique and Damask looking badass as hell with this sort of rough, sketchy, shadowed look to it that Sienkiewicz does so well with his inks. Like, I would have a poster of that if I cared more about Damask. Okay, that's cool, but let's talk about Mystique and Nightcrawler's dynamic, because that is what I am here for this issue. Oh, she is such a wonderful, terrible mom. Like, as she talks about... The state of your fur! It's wonderful. Like, she takes Nightcrawler to Cold Grey, which is her castle in the Antarctic. I'm not sure why there's an ancient castle in the Antarctic that Mystique is in charge of, but, you know, it's the Marvel Universe. Fuck it. I'm sure it was, like, a celestial or a vampire or something. I don't know. And immediately just moms him so hard as he complains, Blast, it's cold. You better have central heating laid in, Mom. Good grief. I go to the length of finding a father for you who carried fur in his jeans, and still you moan. And what a father you found. What a son I gave birth to. Do you know how uncomfortable it was to have a baby with feet like yours? And oy vey, eat something. You're so thin. Why aren't you a doctor or a lawyer? You're so smart. So, Miles, I know you haven't seen Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, so this is this may go over your head. But for those those listeners who are familiar with this amazing show, which you should all watch, I am imagining this Mystique sending exactly like Tova Felcha as Naomi Bunch. I mean, me, I just grew up around a lot of Jewish moms. Yeah, I mean, she she is, but but also very, very specifically this casting, which I texted Max of Waiting for the Trade About before we recorded, which led to this whole long, weird conversation about cross-casting Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and um, Age of Apocalypse. And and we only came away with a couple certain points, but one of them um, is is that Greg is Gambit. So um, I'm just going to drop that there and, and let the rest of you deal with it as, as we go. Intriguing. Well, anyway... Mystique keeps evading uh, when Kurt keeps asking her why she's not on Avalon, because while it's never explicitly stated, we of course know that Mystique and Destiny are very much a couple. Destiny's on Avalon. Why is Mystique just ferrying people back and forth between Avalon and the rest of the world? Eventually, though, after he uh, smacks her in the face, dude, treat your mother right, didn't you listen to Mr. T? She crumples. Shut up! Shut up! It's not my fault! Some of us don't deserve peace, that's all. Not with the things we have to do just to live. It's not my fault. 
I like this version of Mystique. She's kind of heroic, or at least what passes for heroic in the Age of Apocalypse, but still very, very morally gray. But even that breakdown can't stop her from just momming the hell out of the rest of the issue as she comments on the ferry, You've got a forked tongue, boy. What did you do in America? Talk your enemies to death? Are you still sulking because I talked you into this? It's great. But uh, eventually their bickering has to come to, well, not an end so much as a pause, because they get to the end of the ferry route that we saw earlier, and they meet up with Kane Marco, the semi-juggernaut. And on their journey, we learn a bit more about this version of Kane and why he differs so much from his 616 counterpart. I was a man of violence. God gifted me with great physical power, and I squandered it on murder. Dozens of murders. Hundreds. I still see their faces when I fast for too long. They chant the ways they died. I knew so many ways to make people die, and none to help people live. So I get the impression here that Kane does still have the power of the Juggernaut. He does still have the Crimson Gem of Sidorak. That's why he's so gigantic, and that's why he was presumably able to kill uh, a lot of people. Hundreds. Yeah, there's so much power creep in terms of murder in the Age of Apocalypse. Like, to make an impression, you have to kill hundreds of people. Just killing one or two, everyone just shrugs at you, I guess. But, uh... Again, one of the things I enjoy in the Age of Apocalypse is implied backstory. It makes the world feel lived in. So the fact that we don't know how Cain went from being some version of the Juggernaut to being an ascetic monk working for a utopia, that just implies that there are more and more stories out there. Yeah, yeah. Now, we also learned that the job Cain does now is one that Destiny used to do when she was younger. Um, in fact, Raven is surprised that Kane's the one who meets them there. And they finally arrive and meet Destiny and her adopted son, whom Mystique is shocked to meet because she had no idea. That's a little awkward. But this son is, hey, it's Doug Ramsey, it's Cypher, with a dumb-looking crew cut and a strangely new mutants-looking black and yellow jumpsuit. He is, in fact, why everyone in Avalon can speak the same language. He's got a psionic translation field. I don't think that's ever a power they really explored for him in the 616. No, but it does make me think that if he did have a codename in 295, he would be Babblefish. Ah. Uh. Destiny's really happy that Mystique has finally come to settle down with her in Avalon, but uh, it's not that at all. And when Destiny finds out, the narration has such wonderful subtlety to it. Destiny, with a little pained noise she might have learned from Raven, turns and walks away. They're really believable, complicated exes. We never find out why they broke up, what happened, but that sense of longing and regret with just a little bit of bitterness to it is very much there. Ugh, my heart. I know. And also the Pale Rider's hearts, because Damask and Deadman Wade show up at Avalon, and, you know, it's the Savage Land. It's wild and natural and beautiful, and for some reason there aren't any dinosaurs, so they can appreciate it without getting stomped on or chomped on. Wade is not into this. Wade looks around, sees that everything's alive. Being alive sucks and he hates it. So he decides he just wants to kill it. Damask, though, starts to question everything. She didn't know that beauty and peace like this could exist. Unfortunately, she's not able to stop Wade before he can attack. 
as this goes on, as Avalon starts to burn and be gunned down and explode, because, I mean, Dead Man Wade's not exactly Deadpool, but he's still as heavily armed as Deadpool, Kurt tries to get through to Kane. I mean, this guy clearly has immense physical power, but he's got this vow of peace. And Kurt just guilt trips him over and over about, do you, do you want to let your friends die? Do you know what burning flesh smells like? And Kane has an aneurysm from the internal conflict and just drops dead, saying his brother Charles's name. It's kind of the ultimate I cannot yet I must from Robot Monster. I mean, it, it, it's really sad, but wow, the idea that you can have such a philosophical quandary that your head explodes? I mean, inside? Miles, where do must and cannot meet on the charts? You know, if Kane was wearing a gorilla suit and a diving helmet... I mean, it's already a pretty good comic, but I think it might be a little better. Uh, listeners, if you haven't seen the old movie Robot Monster, well, it's terrible. So if you haven't seen the old movie Robot Monster and you like terrible movies, I recommend it. Thankfully, there's some inter-bad guy fighting as Damask confronts Wade. No, this isn't fair. Is it right? I always wanted to do things right. But the world was bad, so I became like the world, because that was obviously the way things were. But no one told me the world could be like this. And I won't let you kill it, just when I've found it. D Damask, <laughs> look at m me. I am the world. I don't die. I just regenerate and rot. I, I, I'm a nice man. I am. I just don't want people to be alive. That's all? <laughs> I'm gonna have to kill you now, Damask, because Apocalypse will be angry. Don't use your powers on me. My healing factor will save me, and it'll just hurt me some more. <laughs> Wade, you know what your healing factor won't save you from? Nightcrawler teleporting your head off. And so, Dead Man Wade is thoroughly Dead Man Wade, and Damask defects to join our heroes. I gotta ask, though, as far as Damask and Wade's takes on this, do you buy those? I buy Wade's. I don't know if I buy Damask's, but I don't think she's sufficiently developed as a character for me to go either way on that. You know what I do buy? I buy Mystique's response to Kurt killing Wade. That's my son. He's a show-off. So one time my family drove across the border to Canada. I'd never been, and we just drove around in Canada for like five minutes to say we did. Um, but we spent way too long at the border station because my mother insisted on telling the border crossing guard guy all about my accomplishments at school. He was very polite and listened for longer than most people would have. I'd say wow, but honestly, knowing your mother, that is the least surprised I have ever been in my life. So with Damask having joined Nightcrawler, Switchback, Mystique, and Destiny, these people need a team name. And the team name they get and the reason they get it, I just have to respect the hell out of this because it's so gloriously dumb. Apparently the bullets that Nightcrawler or maybe Mystique bought, brought over, it's unclear, have an X marked on the butt of them. So instead of being like 45 caliber or whatever, they're X caliber. And so that's what this new team calls themselves. Wow. I hate that so much I almost come full circle to loving it. I know. I get the impression that Ellis was handed the title Excalibur, and he's like, all right, this is dumb, but I have to at least attempt to justify it. Okay, fuck it. Here's what I've got. I'm going to throw it in at the end of an issue. Moving on. 
So, as we must, to Excalibur number four, On Fire. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Ken Lashley, inked by Phil Moy and Tom Weisgren, colored by Joe Rosas and Digital Chameleon. Do you get the feeling they kind of gave up when it came to titling this issue? I do, but, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with a direct approach. Anyway, this issue has a new narrator, and we can tell that both from the cynical tone and from the white-on-black captions. Those captions belong to the Shadow King. He is one of Apocalypse's prize operatives, and he possesses people. He had snuck into Avalon in Dead Man Wade and then tried to jump to Switchpack, who was able to shake him off by sending herself back in time by 10 seconds when things felt weird. Uh, however, the Shadow King then made his way into an electrokinetic and a bunch of other people, and he is the second wave of the attack. He basically levels Avalon by himself. This part's interesting because the captions talk about everyone's hate and bigotry and internal bitterness rising up and causing them to tear each other apart, brother against brother, mother against son, whatever. But the art just shows everybody like floating in the air and screaming with a bunch of psychic lightning crap all around them. It's a definite disconnect. Now, the Shadow King isn't the only cynical jerk here. Kurt takes a break in the fight to corner Doug and yell at him for hiding in a utopia while the rest of the world burns. Now, the fight then goes on, and after Dansk tries and fails to stop the Shadow King, he jumps to Mystique. And then uses her powers to turn her into Sabretooth to yell at Nightcrawler? That makes me think that Ellis had intended Sabretooth to be Nightcrawler's dad in this universe, like the mention of someone with a gene for fur, stuff like that. That's... That's maybe an example of Uncle Warren's continuity corner a little bit, but eh, I'll allow it. No, because we know that he and Mystique have at least one kid together. Well, sure, yeah, but the fact that the Shadow King, who's a telepath and could read people's secrets, specifically had Mystique turn into Sabretooth to yell at Nightcrawler, that makes me think that Ellis figured that Sabretooth was Nightcrawler's dad. I think he's supposed to have been in, in this universe. In 295? You'd think he would look, like, way different then. I mean... You never know. Oh, okay. The law of conservation of Nightcrawler. You have to have a sexy, blue, velvety, fuzzy elf, otherwise the universe will fall apart. That's the law of conservation of trademarks. Ah, an even more powerful force. Now, no force, though, is quite as powerful as plot necessity, which may be why Kurt here comes up with a plan that might be even worse than the bullets. He's in my mother. When I teleport, I spend a fraction of a second in an adjacent dimension. I'm praying that he uses that same space to make his transitions between hosts. If I teleport all three of us, and Switchback can extend our transition time... Okay, this is based on zero evidence, and I am legitimately kind of furious that it works at all. Right, the idea that, okay, the Shadow King can move between people's minds, and that sounds a little like teleportation, and I can teleport, and therefore we can catch each other in the teleport dimension. Like, that is even more of a reach, more of a leap, than that time that Sunspot figured, hey, maybe if I just try real hard, I can suddenly fly, and it worked. Okay, I feel like that was an entirely reasonable conjecture on Sunspot's part, given the company he keeps. I mean, I guess that's true, and it is Roberto da Costa, and if anyone believed that they could fly just because they wanted it enough, it would probably be him. But still, this plan is—I mean, Kurt's always so terrified of, like, teleporting into solid rock or whatever, he's very cautious with his teleportation. And with this, it's just, I don't know, maybe I can teleport into telepathy land. Sure, why not? Um, 
Now, this plan works because who the fuck even knows? But there's a problem. Um, the Shadow King got deep enough into one of the host's minds that he basically left intentions behind there, and the dude tries to zap, zap Destiny, but Doug, having internalized Kurt's dubious advice, jumps in the way and gets killed. Very similarly to how he jumps in the way of the animator's gunshot in Fall of the Mutants to save Wolfsbane when he died in the 616. It's a nice callback, and I mean, we talk about, like, the inevitability of a sexy blue furry man, but it's it interests me. Like, I don't know if I like the idea or not, but just that certain events with certain people have to occur a certain way, even if the context is wildly different. Like, there's this episode of The X-Files called The Field Where I Died. It's about reincarnation, and it's a widely reviled episode about how Mulder and Scully and Skinner, like, have known each other in all of their lives, but... It's also kind of beautiful. Like, even the sad stuff is kind of beautiful. The idea that there's this inherent meaning, these inherent constants to the way things have to go. I like the episode where they all call each other from the bath. That one's pretty good, too. So, also, there are definitely universes where this doesn't happen, because, uh, among other things, we know for a fact that this isn't how crime lord Doug Ramsey dies. Oh, yeah, and then there was the, uh, the the True Friend universe. Was that the same one, or was that a different one? That's the that's a different one, but there have to be universes where Doug is both good and survives. Okay. I mean, to be fair, in 616, he comes back, because, you know, everybody comes back. It's not quite the same thing. I suppose. Anyway, here in Earth-295, his death is enough, and the destruction of Avalon are collectively enough to convince Destiny that she should leave and fight after all, and also presumably kiss Mystique a bunch. This is an interesting way of retrieving someone from a place who doesn't want to leave that place. You show up, and then the entire place is destroyed and everyone is killed, and there's no reason for the person you're trying to retrieve to stay there. If I was Destiny, I would not be very happy with Nightcrawler. I mean, it worked, though. It did work, to be fair. And like so many other Age of Apocalypse miniseries, this ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger because, of course, everything is going to come to a head in X-Men Omega. So, what do you think of Excalibur? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff in it. I really like a lot of the writing. I think the the darkness of the Age of Apocalypse, just how how dirty and wicked people can become in it, is sold very well. Um, there's some cool moments of art. I like reinterpretations of characters, but it feels like it's not about anything specific. Like it's got so many different plot lines and tones, and it doesn't really ever seem to come to a thematic point. So I like it, but I like the moments more than the series as a whole. What about you? I mean, I think you nailed it, that the moments are better than the series as a whole. The moments are good enough that I feel like they carry a lot of the series, but yeah, it's 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 not that cohesive. Yeah, and I do think that's a problem that early Warren Ellis does tend to have. I mean, I remember at the end of the Soul Sword saga, when the last page basically said, oh, uh, by the way, Amanda Sefton gave the Soul Sword to Margali Sardos, and it turns out she was a traitor and was betraying everybody, and then she killed everybody on the winding way ahead of her. Okay, the end. Pacing. He gets much, much better at pacing as his career goes on. So... This is the first Age of Apocalypse series that we've touched on that really takes us into at least, you know, the larger parts of, of, of the Marvel Universe, or takes us outside of at least, you know, North America and Western Europe. 
yeah, we head to the dinosaurless savage land of Antarctica. So we were thinking we could talk a little bit about Age of Apocalypse geography as our focus topic for this episode. There was a map of the world in in the middle of most Age of Apocalypse issues, most of the single-issue floppies. But the collector's preview that we've quoted before had not only a version of that map, but also descriptions of everything where we learned a little bit more about how the world works. So North America we know. North America we've been through in the comics. Apocalypse, this is all Apocalypse's realm. And he directly controls, he directly oversees the eastern half of, of, of the country, or at least the eastern seaboard. Yeah, and then he's divided the rest of it up between his four horsemen. The northwest and part of Canada goes to Holocaust. That's where the Seattle core with the Sugar Man and stuff is as well. The Midwest goes to Mikhail Rasputin, who I assume now puts ranch dressing on everything. I really love that he's like the horseman of Indiana. That just kind of fits him. <laughs> yeah. The Great Plains and some more of Canada goes to Sinister. The southwestern U.S. and part of Mexico goes to Abyss. I was thinking... Like, okay, there have been different numbers of horsemen. How did that work out politically when there were, say, five horsemen? But then I remembered the only time it's been confirmed that we had five horsemen was when Apocalypse first made his move to take on the Cape Citadel missile base. So maybe he was down to an even four by the time he was divvying up the U.S. that he now ruled. I'm pretty sure they fight over who has to take Florida. Oh, man. Apocalypse ended up with it. I mean, to be fair... Floridians do survive a lot that most people wouldn't be able to, so maybe Apocalypse respects that. And make really bad choices. Yeah, yeah, the, the horsemen of Florida. I, uh, well, I don't even know. So there also is a space called the Badlands, which is essentially northern Canada, and past that is the Wall of Apocalypse. Uh, a wall in the north, uh, no relation to Game of Thrones, I assume. We don't ever really find out what the deal with that is, other than that Apocalypse doesn't want anybody entering or exiting through the northern border. In northern Canada? Yeah, I mean, I guess this is the Marvel Universe, and Canada is fucking terrifying, so maybe it makes some sense. Ooh, I, I, do we ever find out about Wendigos in the Age of Apocalypse? Uh, no, but I'm guessing there are like 7,000 of them above that wall. Oh man, there's gotta be so much cannibalism. There really, really does. As for Central America, it's flooded, so nobody's there anymore. It's not directly explained why. Like, I was thinking maybe the ice caps melted and global warming hit it, but the rest of the world isn't flooded, so probably not. But there's a little note in this article talking about how when Magneto and Apocalypse fought at Mount Wundagor before the place was destroyed, you know, the X-Men's first base in this universe, Magneto's powers blew up and the Earth's electromagnetic field was all screwed up and there were all these natural disasters and weather alterations. So I assume that's related. South America in its entirety has been nuked into oblivion. It is now extremely radioactive. Yeah, and there were mutated you know, animals, I assume, there. Again, this is something that it just doesn't go into in the series. The series is so North America and Western Europe focused. Just like America in 1996. Yeah. It's unfortunate with the South America thing, though. I mean, okay, it's unfortunate that an entire continent got nuked, obviously. But I feel like you could have some really interesting stuff with the imperially focused Nova Roma in the imperially focused Age of Apocalypse. I agree Although I'm kind of stuck on the next point on this list, which says that they sunk France. And I'm pretty sure that, that, that that's not really how, like, chunks of continents work. 
Yeah, maybe Apocalypse has some kind of former horseman who was really into, like, tectonic plates and messing with them. Maybe the Mole Men were involved. I bet the Mole Men were involved. Fucking Mole Men. Right? Uh, Europe, of course, is also where the human resistance is centered politically. But one interesting thing that this map tells us is that the human resistance is centered militarily on the western coast of the continent of Africa. That they've cut these defense lines into the earth, whatever that means, that have caused all this erosion, but it's worth it and necessary. And this geographically is what I would have loved to see more of in the Age of Apocalypse. Like, Africa is forgotten in comics often. It's either just turned into basically the nation of Africa, or it's just a bunch of horribly stereotypical, like, tribespeople with spears and and stuff. We see a little bit of Wakanda at the beginning of X-Universe, but it's already destroyed and looks basically like a commercial for feeding starving children. And it sucks because, like, Apocalypse is from Egypt, you know? Apocalypse is from Africa, And you would think that would be a big deal in the Age of Apocalypse, culturally for him at the very least, and there's just nothing. We don't see the human resistance, we don't see Apocalypse's roots, it's just ignored. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if I'm ever going to say this again, but I think that's something that the movie got right over the comic. Yeah, no, I I agree. Like, X-Men Apocalypse did many things wrong, but it did that one right. Well, mostly. Eh, righter. Speaking of a large and largely overlooked continents, what's going on in Asia? Well, we learned from this article and this map that Japan was nuked due to their economy and their growing population. And we did indeed hear a lot about Japan being, like, annihilated uh, in Sunfire's backstory in Astonishing X-Men. So that tracks. But yeah, the rest of Asia isn't even mentioned. And, like, the Middle East, I mean, Egypt wasn't mentioned. We're not seeing uh, Israel mentioned here, which is kind of weird given the thematic connections with Legion Quest and stuff like that. Yeah, um, this is, this is spotty, and honestly, yeah, I, this is one of those places where I think the attempts to build out the world actually kind of have the opposite effect. They make the comics themselves seem so much more insular. It's true, yeah. I mean, it's the Age of Apocalypse, but Apocalypse is really only in control of one continent. Like, he's wrecked a lot of the other continents, but you would think if it's his age, it's right there in the name, he would dominate most of the planet, and the human resistance would just be in, like, scattered packs here and there. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Look at the major villains, the major demagogues, the major dictators through history— and, you know, what defines eras and who you think of as the definitive figures of of eras. I guess that's true, yeah. They don't have to rule the entire world to still be, you know, feared slash respected slash whatever. Well, slash iconic, and you don't have to be a positive icon to be an icon. No, fair enough. Speaking of people who are positive icons, we've got listeners and they've got questions. Harrison asks via email... What happened to the rest of the Marvel books during the Age of Apocalypse? Did they acknowledge what was going on in the X-Books at all? Not that I know of, no. I mean, I was only following the X-Books at the time. Uh, I'd even given up on Thor because the 90s were not a good time for Thor, even if Thunderstrike was was kind of fun. Uh, so maybe if I was reading the other Marvel books and noticed that they were just carrying on business as usual, ignoring the world having been rewritten, I wouldn't have been as pissed off about all of my X-Books having been canceled because I would realize, oh, this must be a temporary thing. 
But come to think of it, Bishop number one and Rogue number three had the same cover date as all the number ones of Age of Apocalypse, so I don't know why I didn't catch it from those. It's been a long time, I don't remember. But yeah, as near as I can tell, the rest of the Marvel Universe didn't notice because the timeline was re-unwritten in X-Men Omega, and when the Emkron Crystal overwrote reality, it did so instantaneously. Well, most of the time that it was portrayed, it did so instantaneously. So I guess the rest of the Marvel Universe must have just kept on going and picked up right after reality was rewritten in X-Men Omega four months later. My assumption, though, is that if that wasn't the case, the rest of the Marvel Universe was probably just too busy discussing the debut of Dr. Druid's solo series, which came out during the Age of Apocalypse. Wait, uh, Dr. Druid had a solo series? He did. That's Dr. Druid, Dr. Anthony Droom. Okay, fine, he was later Anthony Ludgate. But yeah, the Marvel Universe's premier, footy pajama clad, cool with his male pattern baldness, wizard. I've decided that he's related to April Ludgate, and nothing you can do will stop me from believing this. I feel fine about this. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Hi experts, I love reading comics but struggle with internalized snobbery. I mainly read academic history and canon literature. I'm too embarrassed to ever talk about comics with people, and the idea of reading them in public horrifies me. I've set myself the target of reading 50 books this year, but can't bring myself to count graphic novels, including the Age of Apocalypse trade paperbacks I read and prep for your show. Do you guys ever struggle with the graphic novels aren't really books thoughts, and how do you deal? So, um, I do not struggle with that because I am 37 years old and confidently certain that it's not true. Like, comics, whether they're, you know, co- so first of all, comics are the medium, not the, not anything else. The, the things, the, the, the format in which these stories are told are comics. Graphic novels are one format of comics. Periodicals are a format of comics, etc. Um, second, they are literature with a language as rich, nuanced, and complex as any prose. The idea that there's less language, that the narrative is somehow less real or requires less specific literacy or less of a specific type of literacy than reading books that are just words is, to me, kind of deeply ridiculous. And I'm coming at this, again, as someone who's who's worked in and written in and edited in both both of those formats and i think it's it's yeah i I think the idea that they're they're not real books or real stories or really reading is is kind of unfathomable like i i think it's 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 a silly and it's a largely dated stereotype i mean it, it was never true but i i think it's something that that's been even at this point widely challenged and debunked even in the circles that decide what counts as canon which is the final point i want to address When you say you read mostly canon literature, it's worth stepping back, and one of the first steps to challenging what you describe as that internalized snobbery is asking the question, who's canon? Because if you're talking about specifically Western, academic, patriarchal, institutionalized canon, you're looking at a very, very narrow subset of books that a very narrow subset of people have decided count as literature, as real books. And that have gained that status largely on lines that have, among other things, completely overlooked things like books by women of color, books in languages other than English, in large part translated works, in large part works that aren't Eurocentric. And I doubt 
that you believe that those that the, the the categories I just listed aren't books or don't count as literature. So maybe it's worth considering to what extent the people who decided that what you consider canon counts as canon should get to be considered the authorities on that at all. Yeah, well said and agreed. Comics are literature, damn it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm sorry. That is that is a hill I will fight and die on. And <laughs> um, it's 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 this is this is this is I think again at this point. Most I'm not I don't know about most just because I don't have the stats, but I I I know one of the people who teaches comics lit classes at Harvard. If that helps. <laughs> um, so it's it's I mean they're they're they're. A field of study. There are a field of study. In fact, if, if academic legitimacy is your thing with its own academic lex- lexicon, you're going to want to look up a book called Systems of Comics by uh, a guy whose name I cannot pronounce. But his last name is Gronstein or something like that. Systems of Comics. Anyway, I will desist for now, but please know that I'm still ranting in my head. <laughs> Forever ranting. The J edited in story. The Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men story, however, is written in large part by you, our listeners, who we love very much, because we depend on your support to do our show and keep it ad-free, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It's time for the Shadow King, I mean, the angry Claremontian narrator. (sighs) Look at you, Mac Hume. Insulated, smug, Convinced that your moral rectitude and admittedly admirable podcast patronage set you apart from the masked legions of humanity. That's what William Fletcher thought once, too. But soon, Mac, soon you too will discover, as William did, just how wrong you are. Not about the podcast part, though. That's still cool. And the microphone at this point goes to Sexy Nightcrawler. Unglaublich, Fräulein Sandra. In my travels from the Munich Circus to the wastelands of Westchester, I have never seen such beauty matched by such wit. Allow me to take your coat, and why, yes, my fur does feel like... Kurt, have you been using that conditioner I told you about? You need to make sure that you get the one that's silicon-free, because otherwise that stuff will just, it'll gum up your fur, it'll stick in that, like, crazy. Mother, later! I have friends over! Now, my pardon, Michael Timothy, please come sit on the bed with myself and Sandra. Oh, and Schildigung, I didn't realize my tail was on your hand. I'll move it unless... Oh, you don't mind. Well... Why, Kurt, you didn't mention you had friends over. Ah, let me see if I can find some of your baby pictures. You two gotta sit around and hear this. You know, when this little guy was was hardly taller than my knee, you would not believe the words that came out of that blue mouth. I'm I'm telling you. Mother, mine got! I'm busy! Ha, that's what you'd like to think. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every single episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next episode, Cosmic Marvel comes calling... In Gambit and the Externals. 